Well, it's good to be with you once again this morning as we continue in Amos chapter 8. And it's my fault that I left verses 1 through 3 as our primary scripture. We're going to be all over chapter 8 this morning. So let's say Amos chapter 8 verses 1 through 14. This is the end has come part 2, never to pass by again. Now I know it's a rainy drizzly Sunday morning and everybody's brains are a little foggy so let's take just a moment this morning to consider where we've been in the book of Amos and how the sin of Jeroboam the first affected the entirety of the nation for his sin was not simple kind of the run-of-the-mill Canaanite demonic paganism which is tough enough all on its own but instead Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he thought he needed him to be, and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you forth out of Egypt. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they, along with the king, immediately fell into the vilest of depravity, into a madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth of the word of God that was before them. And so several generations later, later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, and two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd and gatherer of sycamore figs from Tekoa, saw the word of the Lord. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn in the top of of Carmel withers, and all of this occurs where a very partial God shows no partiality, for there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that has ever come out of hatred. And so the word of the Lord to Israel is woe. Woe to you, particularly to those who are at ease, least willing to be woeful. They feel secure. They feel easy, and yet their feelings do not match their reality, for in truth they are neither easy nor secure. They are in denial unto their own destruction, because they are those that bring their God in their own hand, their idea, their image of who they think a holy God should be, and the way he ought to act towards them, and what he ought to command instead of who he reveals himself to be. And when you make a God that looks an awfully like, like you, you end up looking awfully righteous and feeling awfully at ease and feeling awfully secure, even when in fact you're not. As we've seen over the last several months, such provocation will make a holy God swear. And having none greater to swear by, he swears by himself, at least most of the time. He swears the promise of salvation to his people and he swears death to those who would trample it underfoot for the Lord disciplines those he loves. Amos will see a word from the Lord all right and it will be a hard word. As a matter of fact, a word that it says that the land cannot bear and yet in the strength of the Lord he will bear it. And so last week we began to look intently at the hard word of the Lord that Amos saw in Amos chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3 where it says that this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel and I will never again pass by them. 
The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Silence is both the command from the Lord, literally in the Hebrew, hush, the command from the Lord to be silent for as dreadful as that day is, it is nothing more than what they deserved. And what they had been being warned for centuries would come if they continued in their iniquity. Be quiet, the Lord says. More chillingly, silence is not simply a command from God. But it is the promise of the Lord to Israel. For in the nation of Israel, silence will fall. In chapter 8, in verse 11 through 12, the Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There is a famine coming, the Lord says, and it's worse than any, could, any you could imagine of a famine of bread or even of a famine of water. It is a famine of hearing the word of the Lord spoken. And you say, man, a famine of bread would be really bad because after roughly about 40 days, you know, your body starts consuming itself starts consuming its own muscles its own internal organs and then you actually truly go from just being hungry to starving to death and then you die a famine of water would be worse under most cases about three days and your tongue is swelling up and your lungs are filling full of fluid and you're dead but the lord says this is something worse this is a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And you say, well, how, how could it be worse than that? And the reason it could be worse is because the effectual word of God is the means of salvation to his people. This is the way that, that the grace of salvation comes to us. It comes to us through his word and faith in what his word has promised in John chapter 1. In verse 1, and then again in verses 4 and 5. And it's a great time of year as we draw closer to Christmas for this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Scripture teaches us that the Word of the Lord is much more than simply words printed on a page. That the Word of the Lord in actuality is a person that the word of the Lord is the Lord, that the word of the Lord is Jesus Christ, and the word became flesh. But before the word became flesh, he was still speaking to his people through his spirit. He spoke, it says, by his spirit to the prophets who said these very things that we're reading today. Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures like madmen because you believe that in them there is eternal life. He says, I tell you, they speak about me. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul will say, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
It is a famine that is worse than a famine of bread. It is a famine that is worse than a famine of water because it is the famine of the very thing, the only thing that has the ability to deliver salvation to the people of God. Therefore, no word equals no salvation. No word equals damnation. And in desperation, it says, they will wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And we are so spoiled today. <laughs> there is a Bible in every house. <laughs> you have instant access on your phone as much as it makes my teeth hurt to, to, to say that. It's there. There are preachers in pulpits, some better, some worse, but the word is there. We don't even know what this is like. And he says, they will run from sea to sea and to and fro. Such will be the desperation of this condemnation that seven centuries later, Paul will still be mourning the loss of what occurred in Israel in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, we looked at it last week. He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. But my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Such was the nature of this judgment that it was reverberating across the centuries. Yeah, even across the millennium, it is still reverberating to this day. The Lord says, what do you see, Amos? And he tells him, the end has come upon my people, Israel. And the Lord says of this end, he will never forget. In Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? The Lord says that in this judgment he will never forget. He'll never forget what they did. That this judgment is absolute. And just as certain as every year with the spring rains, the Nile in Egypt would flood, and what has previously been a peaceful and slow flowing river will turn into a torrent and flood the fields, being tossed up just to sink back down again as summer approaches and leave all the jetsam and floatsam in its wake. So too. Justice will roll over Israel. It will seethe upon itself just like the Nile. If you remember, this is not the first time that the Lord has used this imagery. Back in Amos chapter 5, in verse 21, the Lord says this, and I think in the heart of the Lord being revealed, you know, God never does anything just to do it. He never commands anything just to command it. He is always doing and commanding as the reflection of his own character. 
He's showing you himself. It's one of the reasons in, in, in our modern day and age, if I can digress from the notes for just a moment and I'll be quick, it's one of the reasons that Christians today often have such a hard time explaining where God is at when disaster befalls a people. And the reason is, is because they have, to some degree, a take-your-God-in-your-own-hand image of who God is and not understanding the character of God, the hard parts of the character of God that Scripture teaches abundantly about, but all too often as pastors and Sunday school teachers and youth ministers and even parents, where we feel uncomfortable teaching about God being that way. And so because we want to hold him to our standard instead of us being held to his standard, we don't understand his character. And then when he acts out of his character in the midst of a fallen world, we don't know what to do with that. And so instead of saying with Amos, well, does judgment come on a city unless the Lord God has sent it? The reason that disaster comes is because this is a fallen world in a sinful place. And this is, this is the very point why we need the gospel. We need to call out to Christ for salvation. We don't, we don't know how to do that. Instead, we tell people just the watered-down Kool-Aid version. It's not even that. It's not even actual Kool-Aid. It just, it's like, you know, just some food coloring, I think, in a cup of water that says, hey, listen, the Lord wasn't in this, but he can sure help you out now that it's happened. And friends, it's just a logical fallacy if, that's, if the Lord wasn't in it, but he's powerful enough to help me now, why didn't he just help me the first time? God never does anything just to do it. He does it out of his character and is the reflection of his character. And so he's about to tell these people that justice is going to roll over them. Justice is going to roll over them. It's going to seethe and foam up. It's going to drop back down just like the Nile. You remember when we looked at this, the, the, the idea of the Hebrew word here means to turn on oneself. But before he tells you what's going to happen, he tells you why. I hate. I despise. I hate, I despise your feast, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Man, you would think that if you heard that from a sovereign God, what you would do is hit your knees and beg. But they didn't. Instead, they looked at Amos and said, it's a hard word, the land can't bear it. Go away. Preach it at your home. Preach it in Judah. Preach it in Jerusalem. Don't preach it here. For this is the king's sanctuary. <laughs> and he wasn't talking about Christ. Justice will roll down. Why? Because I hate it, he says. I hate it. I will. <laughs> Surely. I will never forget any of their deeds. Justice is absolute in Israel. How absolute? 
absolute. As a matter of fact, not only does he say that justice will turn over them like the waters, erasing like a flood whatever was there before, not only is it so absolute that he will never forget what they've done, but it's so absolute that he will never pass by them again. Verse 2, he said to Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. And so at this point in time, you might be thinking, you go, man, that's some pretty wrathful stuff. Justice is going to roll down. It's going to turn over them like waters. It's going to be like the Nile, which is the strongest river that they have any knowledge of that just floods and whips and washes and foams and flushes away. It's going to roll over you like this. I'll never forget what you did, and I will never pass by you again. And when you look at the things that he's threatening them with, you may think to yourself, well, that could possibly be a good thing. (laughs) If this is what you're bringing with you, then the fact that you don't come our way anymore might actually be to our benefit. But if you thought that, you would be looking at the Scripture out of the context of Scripture. And unfortunately, that happens sometimes. We pull things out of context and... And, and maybe out of context it sounds a certain way, but then when you put it in context, man, everything changes. You ever had a conversation like that? Have you ever had somebody hear you say something out of context and they took it the wrong way because they didn't really understand what was going on? And then when you see what's actually going on, then you go, oh, yeah. God's presence. God's presence amongst the people of Israel is the very thing that makes them holy and brings them rest. Without his presence, they are not holy. They are common and vulgar. Without his presence, they do not have rest. They only have the turmoil of a fallen existence. When speaking to Moses about moving Israel out of the Egypt, out of Egypt, and how he was going to make them his bait, and how he was going to make them his people and his family, and they were going to be precious in his sight and set apart from all of the rest of the nations of the earth, speaking to Moses, Moses in Exodus chapter thirty-three, in verse thirteen through fourteen, Moses is wondering how all of this is going to come to be because he's looking at this ragtag group of ex-slaves. And he's hearing the glorious things that God's saying. And he's like, man, the only way this is going to work, like there's no program that's going to make this happen. You can't have a deacon's meeting and an elder's council and come up with a good enough idea to take these people from what they are to what God says they're going to be. I don't care how many ministry books you read, you're not going to get them there. And so Moses says, look, man, the only way, the only way this can go down is if you go with us and make it happen. And so Moses says, If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. But Moses isn't done with just him and God. This is bigger than just him and God. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. All right, Lord, this, what you're saying, impossible. But I've got to look at you up close and personal here recently. And uh, the one thing I'm sure of is if anybody can make it happen, it's you. But that's all that's going to make it happen. So 
So, show me your ways in order that I can find favor in your sight, but not just me. Remember these people also, since you say this is your people. And God said to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It is the presence of a holy God in the midst of Israel that makes them holy. It is his holy presence that gives them rest when otherwise they would simply have the turmoil of going to and fro and from one ocean to the other looking for the word of the Lord and not being able to find it. In God passing by them. So if, if you have a people whose holiness is based on the presence of God in their midst, how do you get, and, and these people, they weren't born holy, they're totally depraved, man. They're born sinners. If you're there on Wednesday night, these are the ones that were born in the image of their father, Adam. Adam was created in the image of God. He fell. He brought children in his own image. And so they didn't just, they weren't just born one day and here's God in their midst. If God's going to be in your midst and this is the thing that makes you holy and this is what gives you rest, how does he get there? Well, he has to pass by you. He has to come into your midst, into your presence, and you have to be brought into his. The prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 16, will explain that if salvation is having God in your midst, and you were born apart from God, that the moment that he passes by you is the moment that your salvation is realized. For that is the first time that he is in your midst. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, in verse 1, it's a huge passage, it's wonderful, but we're just going to read a short portion today. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Okay. Why is Jerusalem abominable? Because of what they've done. They're going to be abominable because of what they've done, but they're not there yet. Because where he's starting at is how they were abominable at the beginning. Why they were an object of scorn and judgment from the moment of their birth Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Boy, this is incredibly insulting to them. Let me just tell you. Incredibly insulting. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field where you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Man, they didn't even cut your cord, man. They chunked you just, you know, placenta and all right out to the field. Let nature take its course. And when I passed by you, when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing, when I saw you turning, rolling, the way justice is about to roll down, 
When I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. On this day, there was not silence in Israel. On this day, there was a booming word. They took a Canaanite, an Amorite, and a Hittite mutt and made it a Hebrew. They took that which was foul and destined for death and made it alive and glorious and beautiful. There was no silence in Israel on this day. On this day, the word of the Lord boomed forth. I said, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and you were naked and bare. I passed by you again. Lord's not done with them. He's not content that just his people should live. He wants them to be prepared to be the very bride of Christ. I passed by you again and I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Say, man, with the stuff the Lord brings, I don't know if we want him passing by. Friends, you want him passing by. He says, I'll never do it again. Instead of the booming word to live, what you'll get silence. There's a famine coming. Not of bread, not of water. There's a famine coming of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that is the means by which salvation's come. We'll never forget what they've done. Instead, he will never pass by them again. And once again, centuries later, Paul is still mourning their loss. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They weren't satisfied to believe that God said that who God was was who he said he was. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But they did not believe the word of the Lord when it came to them. And yet, even though this absolute reality, when Paul writes here in the book of Romans, has been continuing on for the better part of a millennia, yet Paul's desire, seemingly apart from any kind of logic, because you know, you think, if you're the apostle, when God says, I'm done with you, I'll never forget what you've done, I'll never pass by you again, silence. You'd think that at that point in time, Paul would, you know, just kind of let that go. The one that got away. 
But he doesn't. His heart breaks for the lostness of his people. And he says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Well, Paul, I've... come on, man, you're a Hebrew of Hebrews. You studied with the best private tutors. Man, you've been taught, you know this stuff. As a matter of fact, when it, when, it comes to, when it comes to doctrine, you swing a bigger stick than anyone else. You know, are you deluded? My heart's desire and prayer to God in them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... This is why we cannot be ignorant of these things. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we have to ask this question, is Paul, knowing what you know, how can you have any meaningful hope in light of such absolute judgment in the book of Amos, and quite frankly, through a ton of the minor prophets. I mean, we're in Amos, but this concept just goes. <laughs> just goes, man. It's everywhere. How can he have any meaningful hope? Well, let me tell you, he does have meaningful hope. He's sticking to his guns. A chapter later, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Not being. Okay. Rewind just for a minute. God doesn't command anything, and he doesn't do anything just to do it. It always comes as the direct expression of his character. It comes as the direct expression of his being. It comes as the direct expression of who he is. And so I know, once again, we're going to keep reminding you every time that the English translation here says by no means, but the Greek word means the exact opposite of means. <laughs> this doesn't mean no means. It means not being. He says, as God rejected his people... Not being, that's not who God is. For I myself, and he's going to use himself as an example. Here he is. I myself am an Israelite. Hey, hang on a minute. Paul Amos said, the end has come for them. He will never forget what they've done. He will pass by them no more. Silence. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what Scripture says of Elijah about how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so Paul calls back here and he, he speaks about Elisha and how he appeals against Israel to God and says, Lord, they've just, they're all just rotten, man. There's, you know, this is before the Assyrian destruction. They're still there. 
the end has not yet come. And he says, Lord, they just they tear down your altars. They worship demons. And I'm alone, the only one that's left. And <laughs> Lord just kind of pats him on the head. And <laughs> don't think of yourself beyond your station. I know you're Elijah. You've, I've drug you through some amazing stuff, but it was all me. It wasn't you. And now you're kind of just acting like you, and you look and smell a lot like your father Adam. There's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You say, okay, well, fair enough. But that was Elisha contending against Israel with God. Here we have God contending against Israel himself. I'm done with them. The end has come. Not passing by them. I'll never forget silence. Why? Because I hate hearing them speak. I hate their festivals. I hate their songs. It's all false. It tells lies about me. I'm done. Done. And yet Paul says, there's a remnant. If you remember from last week, we looked at this passage just for a moment and getting ready for this week. And if you look at the Greek here, the word for remnant literally means residue. You know, I'm a, I'm a two-shower-a-day guy. Got my father's genes. I'm a greasy Gentile, man. Like, it doesn't take long. I break one sweat, and I'm gross, man. Gross, right? Wash it off in the morning, wash it off in the evening. I don't know how. I got these, these goggles here a couple months ago, and they, the lady said, she said, now every single day you need to, to, to put them under cold water and just a little bit of Dawn dishwashing soap on your hands and you know, rub them down good, rinse them off. You need to do this every day. It's how you take good care of your glasses. Don't use a lot of cloths and stuff on them. You need water that will wash the dirt away so it doesn't scratch. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be pretty careful with these things, right? Rocky, I don't know how it works. My face must aerosol grease off onto these glasses. Because I don't touch them, I, I can, you know, right? And it's just, it's just there. It's just there. It doesn't matter what I do. And you can take them and pull them off. And I washed them this morning, and it's already there. And it's not fingerprint smudges. It's little bitty... Residue. Now, residue ain't much. That's why it's residue. Just barely there. But it's enough you notice it. It has an effect. These glasses may not be filthy, but they are not absolutely clean. On the other side, of, on the positive side of that equation, men, Paul and the men like him that are born again amongst Israel, men, there ain't many. But the word of Israel has obviously not been absolutely cut off from these people. So what do you do with that? Because residue is enough to make you go, huh, when the judgment was absolute. We know that the word of the Lord doesn't contradict himself. The Lord says, man, that, that he is the father of lights and in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, the $5 word here is immutable. God doesn't change. So how can there be a remnant when judgment is absolute, no matter how small that remnant is, even if, even if Paul himself was the only one, how, 
how can there be a remnant when judgment is absolute? How can there be a remnant when God swore He would never pass by them again? All right, here at the end today, I want to consider the judgment that a holy God swears. Now, before we jump in here, I think there's a little groundwork that needs to be laid. We need to have a little bit of understanding um, because, you know, we used to joke about this when we're in Romans. You know, the difficulty of Romans is that the context of Romans is Romans, and the context of Romans is the entirety of the Word of God. And so, man, you just end up kind of everywhere pretty quick. We can say something similar to Amos. You know, the context of any of the Word of God is the entirety of the Word of God. This is why we don't pull things out of context and 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 try to use you know um, small snippets of Scripture to be pieced together like a ransom note cut out of a magazine to make it say what we want it to say. But we take it for what it is, and we take the whole counsel of the Word of God and then rightly divide it. And so, just real quickly, need to lay a little groundwork here. First of all, is understanding what national Israel is. And when I say national Israel, I'm talking about the, the, the children of Jacob come together under the headship of one nation being in the land in which that nation is founded. So you have the children of Jacob under the headship of a singular government in the land that God promised. And when you look at national Israel in Scripture, what you'll find is this, is national Israel is not an entity unto itself because God doesn't do anything without cause, and the cause is always the expression of His character. And so national Israel exists as a physical testimony of a spiritual reality that is coming forth out of the character of God Himself. And so if you look in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3 through 5, the author of Hebrews uses this language, shadow and copy. And so we're talking particularly about national Israel here because we're talking about temple worship. And it says this in chapter 8, verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. That's speaking about Christ. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a shadow and a copy of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Israel is an extremely high-quality copy. That's what she is. That's okay, friends. Until the day of glorification, this old mortal coal you're wearing around, that's exactly what it is, too. I know we think it's awful precious, but at the end of the day, man, the reason Israel has priests is because Christ is the priest. The reason she has a king is because Christ is the king. The reason that there's a temple with a mercy seat is because in heaven there is a temple with a mercy seat. The reason that they sacrifice a lamb is because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. And if you keep going in chapter 8, 9, and 10 there of Hebrews, you will find that not by the blood of a goat or a bull or a lamb, but by the means of his own blood, he entered a tent not made with human hands, but eternal in the heavens, took that blood and bought your soul with it. Israel, national Israel is a physical testimony to a spiritual reality. Thus, for the physical nation to exist, 
first, the nation by the Spirit must exist. Which is why when speaking about the promise, the promise of salvation that was being testified to in Israel, Isaac, the son of Abraham, looks at Jacob, who will be the father of all Israel, and he tells him, boy, if the nation is going to exist as testimony, the spiritual reality has to exist first. If you want to have all the stuff that God promised about what this is going to look like on this earth with land and descendants like the numbers of the stars and a king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, if you want that testimony, you better have the reality. It's the only way you'll get it. Look with me in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. In Genesis 28, in the last conversation... that Jacob will have with Isaac. Now boy, that's a statement. Well, at least on this side of glory. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. And he's got to get Jacob out of there or Jacob's dead is the way this deal's going down. His brother's going to kill him. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women Arise and go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a great company of peoples. Okay, the promise that came to Abraham back in Genesis 12 is, is three parts. It is the promise, number one, that God will be your God. It is the promise of salvation. It is the promise that he would take Abraham and through Isaac and Jacob make his numbers like the sands of the seashore, that they would be a great people, and it is the promise of the land in which they would dwell as a testimony of his kingdom to come. And so here's the first part. He says, okay, may God bless you, and may God make you a great company of peoples, and may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land and of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. If you are going to take possession of the land, if you are going to be a great company of peoples, the only way for that to happen is for you to receive the blessing of Abraham, for you to receive what Abraham received when he said, I'm calling you forth out of Ur and you're going to go to the place that I will show you. When he said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. The only way that national Israel exists is if they obtain to the blessing of Abraham. Okay. Keep that in your head. Hold on to that thought. Back to Amos. Let's look at the way that God swears his judgment and his blessing. Let's look at the way, we, we know how he swore his blessing to Abraham, that God swore by himself that he would bless him, that he would be his God. And we've seen God swear by himself to Amos, 
that there would be judgment coming. And so let's look where God swears by Himself. And when God swears by Himself, He is swearing to a physical nation about a physical judgment. Look in Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Okay, here comes God swearing by himself. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Hermon, declares the Lord. The Lord swears by himself. He swears by his holiness. His holiness that is eternally never changing, that is absolute and perfect the very definition of his character. He said, I swear by my own holiness, what they're going to do is drag you out of here with fish hooks, boys. He swears by his own holiness a physical judgment on a physical nation. He does it again in Amos chapter 6 and verse 8. The Lord is sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Twice in Amos, the Lord swears judgment by Himself. He swears judgment by Himself that is a physical judgment upon a physical nation. I'm going to burn this city to the ground. I'm going to drag you out with hooks. These judgments are absolute and immutable. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should change His mind. He has said, has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not fulfill it? But the judgment that comes in chapter 8, this makes physical judgment look like a walk in the park. Now this isn't a famine of bread. It's not a famine of water. It's a famine of the word of the Lord. It's God saying, I won't forget your sin. It's God saying, I will never pass by you and say live again. Instead, what you're going to get in Israel is silence. This makes all the stuff he swore before look inconsequential in comparison. Because one of these things is temporal and the other is eternal. And God swears all right. And thank you, Lord, that in chapter 8 you didn't swear by yourself. He chose a cheaper standard. And he said this in verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. When it, come, when it came to swearing about spiritual judgment, God chose a lesser standard than himself. Instead, he swore by the pride of Jacob. The pride that is stubborn, stiff-necked, and long-lasting. 
but a pride that is not eternal and will one day absolutely be broken. Our conclusion that is unlike the immutability of God and that therefore by which it is sworn, Jacob's pride will come to an end along with that which is sworn by it. God's not contradicting himself. He tied the spiritual judgment of the land to a standard that was lesser than his absolute holiness. And therefore, residue. Jacob's pride's not absolute, it's not perfect, it's not everlasting. And in the hand of God can be manipulated and broken at will. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, we're almost done. Back in Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13. On promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to Israel, on promises made by God and God swearing according to himself, the author of Hebrews says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God promised to Abraham the gospel. He, he gave him the promise that he would give him himself and that he would be his God and that they would be his people and that that would be manifest physically in the nation of Israel when they become a great nation and they possess the land. And he swore by himself. It was of such priority to him that he wouldn't tie it to any lesser thing. He tied it to his own absolute unchanging character, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, just because God promised you something doesn't mean he promised it to you today. Patience is a virtue. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Well, of course he obtained the promise. God swore by himself that Abraham would get the promise. Guess what? Come high water or low water on the Nile, Abraham's getting the promise. That's how this works. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie... We have fled for refuge amongst the strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner chamber behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The fact of the matter is, is that when God swore to Abraham, the promise would come to Abraham, he swore by himself. It was done. When God swore that he would destroy those cities and drag those people out with hooks, it was done. It was going to happen. He swore by himself. When he swore, 
when he swore that he would never forget their deeds and bring a famine of his saving word upon the people of Israel, he swore by the standard of the pride of Jacob. A standard that was never absolute. Even in his most prideful moments, there were moments of grace where Jacob wasn't prideful. Because there was in him the new creation and the image of God. There was in him the mind of Christ. And even in the midst of his pride, there was a remnant. A remnant that would one day come to its full. God swore, thank you Lord, for when you swore spiritual judgment over Israel, the judgment wasn't sworn by you. But it was sworn by a standard that would one day fully crumble. And never was absolute from the beginning. You see, in chapter 8, verse 7, God couldn't have sworn that judgment by himself. Because he had already sworn by himself to these people that the promise of salvation would come to them. It would come to them. You say, well, it's not coming that day. Man, those people were all idolaters apart from God and slaughtered for what they did, I know. But unlike a human being, a nation exists over generations of time. And God's not done with Israel yet. We know he's not. He swore his he swore their salvation by himself and they haven't been saved yet. You say, well man, when will that be? When will that be? Well, and how can it be true that he can say I will never pass by them again? In Amos chapter eight, in verse nine and ten, we find out when that'll be. It'll be on that day. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation and I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head and I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The day that the standard by which God swore condemnation against the spirit of Israel will come to an end at the same time that the standard ends. On the day that Jacob's pride is broken, on a day when the sun goes down at noon, And all of Israel mourns like they're mourning the loss of an only child. That's where we'll pick up next week. You say, man, that's heavy stuff. Technical sermons often are. What do I do with that today? What do you do with that today? Let me tell you what you do with that today. Same thing you did with last week, last week. What you do with that is this is there is coming a day, understand, there is coming a day when grace will end. 
That's not a good way to say that. There is coming a day when the offer of grace will end. Oh, the grace that has been obtained will most surely be maintained. There is coming a day when the offer of grace will end. It is a day when the sun goes down at noon and Israel is wailing like they're wailing over an only child. There's a day when it'll come to an end. That day is not today. That day is not today. Man, today the offer of salvation stands. Today, the thing that Paul is hoping in so that he can hope for the salvation of Israel, the thing that Paul is hoping in in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, today is that day when it is particularly being manifest to Gentiles. Man, today is that day. What do you do with that? What you do is you come to Christ while it's still day. That's what you do. And you bow the knee and you repent. Place the gift of God-given faith in Christ as Lord. You receive the justification of His blood and then you get ready for the sanctification that comes after it. Today is that day. It won't be forever, but it's today. Pray that you find yourself in Christ and if not, that you find yourself running to Christ.